This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for episode 130 of Once Upon a Crime. This is the second chapter in the series, Disorder in the Court, where I detail crimes that happened inside open courtrooms. In this episode, a mother takes justice into her own hands when her little boy is abused by a child molester. Some called her a hero. Others denounced her actions as vigilantism that should have no place in sophisticated society. The details of this case are still debated to this day, but not all of the details are widely known. You may remember this story. There was even a television movie made about it, but I'll bring you the full version, including follow-up details that may surprise you. Just an additional warning. This episode contains information regarding a case of child sexual abuse. Although I don't go into graphic detail about the abuse, you may want to use discretion if you are particularly sensitive to this topic. This is Chapter 2 of Disorder in the Court, the story of Ellie Nessler. One thing people always knew about Ellie Nessler was that she was a devoted mother. Her life revolved around her children, Rebecca and William, who was called Willie, and she was fiercely protective of them both. Ellie grew up in the hilly countryside surrounding Jamestown, California, formerly a gold rush town. Located in the Sierra Nevada mountain range and seated in Tuolumne County, Jamestown feels like the Old West even today. Its quaint downtown area and rustic homes and cabins scattered in its hillsides is home to just over 3,000 residents. The picturesque homespun feel of the town has made it the perfect backdrop for movies and television shows like The Wild Wild West, Green Acres, and Little House on the Prairie. Exterior scenes for the Western-themed movie Hidalgo were shot in Jamestown in 2004. Ellie was the oldest in the family and one of three daughters. Her father was a coal miner, and her mother Marie also came from hardy stock. It was said that Marie didn't suffer fools and was quite a protective mama bear herself. But her children were also expected to be industrious and self-sufficient. Everyone needed to pull their weight, and times could sometimes be tough. But Ellie was no shrinking violet and always rose to the challenge. As a teen, she began taking whatever jobs she could to help bring in a little money for the family. She drove a tractor for cattle ranchers, installed irrigation pipes, dug ditches, and repaired cars. Ellie was married and divorced for the first time when she was barely out of her teens. She then met Bill Nessler, who, like her father, was a miner and also flew a crop duster. Ellie gave birth to their first child, Willie, in 1982. Bill had grown up in the gold country, no doubt hearing stories by old-timers about striking it rich with nothing but a tin pan and a nose for gold. But Bill knew that gold in the hills of Northern California had long been tapped out. Bill decided he needed to go abroad to find his fortune, and so he moved with his wife and toddler son to Liberia, West Africa, where a new gold rush was taking place. Ellie gave birth to their daughter Becky while in Liberia, but soon after, a civil war ignited in the country. For her children's safety, Ellie decided to return home, while Bill remained to continue mining in West Africa. Back in Jamestown, Ellie was able to get by on state financial assistance and doing odd jobs. 
he rented a trailer home in the nearby town of Sonora. While financially times were tough, Ellie was surrounded by family, since her sister Jeanette and her mother Marie lived close by. They were thrilled to have Ellie and the children home again. Additionally, Ellie had her church as a support system. She had grown up in a Christian home, and faith was a big part of her life. She regularly attended church with the children, her sister, and their cousins. Church members were as close to each other as family, and Ellie, as a mother on her own, was grateful when her church friends offered to help her with home repairs and odd jobs around the house, and when they invited her and the kids on outings. Ellie was very protective of her children. Some would say she was overprotective. She didn't allow them to visit in other people's homes or attend birthday parties or other events without her present. By this time, Willie was only six, and Becky was still a toddler, so this was understandable. But Willie was now in grade school and naturally wanted to be able to visit friends, go on sleepovers, and attend campouts without his mother always hovering. It was a constant disagreement between mother and son. So in the summer of 1988, when Ellie's church was having its annual children's away camp in the woods, Willie began pleading with his mother to let him go. At first, Ellie adamantly refused to allow it. There was no way she was going to let her little boy go so far away without her there to ensure that he'd be safe. Most mothers and fathers may be nervous about the prospect of their children leaving home for the very first time, especially if they are to be away for several days. But Ellie had even more to be worried about. Ellie had been molested as a young child. She'd been just about the age her son was at this time. This was largely why she'd always been so vigilant over her children. She'd confided some of what had happened to her mother at the time, and Marie had run the man off with the shotgun. Marie had grown up believing that in the country, you took care of your own. She'd warned the man to get out of town and never go near her child again, or he'd be leaving in a pine box. Ellie never saw him again, but fear lived in the back of her mind from the time she was just a little girl. It made sense that she didn't trust easily and wanted to protect her child. But as the camping trip drew closer, Willie became even more insistent on going. To keep the peace between the family, Ellie's sister Jan talked her into giving Willie permission to attend. Jan reminded her that he'd be with people they knew and trusted, their friends from the church. Ellie still worried, but finally relented and allowed Willie to sign up. Willie would spend three weeks camping, living in cabins, spending time in outdoor activities, and making arts and crafts. Best of all, his friends would be there too, and his mother would not. It was the first time he would be able to spread his wings on his own, and he was ecstatic. So it was puzzling that when Willie returned home, he'd seemed to change. The once happy, bubbly, and mischievous boy was now sullen, morose, and angry. His mother and other family members couldn't understand this change. They tried talking to him, but he refused to engage with them. He would angrily tell them to leave him alone and stop treating him like a baby. In an attempt to assure her sister that this was probably just a normal phase for a growing boy, his Aunt Jan said that maybe Willie was missing his father. Bill Nestler would periodically come back into town, but was an infrequent presence in his son's life. Perhaps being around other boys and their adult male camp leaders made Willie think of his own absent father, Jan reasoned. That must be it, Ellie agreed, and hoped it would be a phase that would pass once school began. But several months passed, and Willie's mood and behavior became even more problematic. It wouldn't be until almost a year later that anyone would finally find out why. 
Daniel Driver, age 35, was a bachelor who was active in the church attended by Ellie Nessler and her family. His mother lived in the area, and Driver had recently moved back to be closer to her and look for work. He was always helpful, offering assistance to the church and its members. He found work as a dishwasher at the summer youth camp. Driver portrayed himself as a very church-going man, always carrying a Bible with him wherever he went. He was often seen at Bible studies and could recite scripture from memory, often inserting it into his conversations. He was also very attentive to children, and the kids responded to him enthusiastically. He spent time with several of the young boys, many of whom were children of divorced mothers. Some were grateful for this attention, possibly because, like Willie, they didn't all have a constant father figure in their lives, and it could be challenging for their mothers to know exactly what a boy needed. Danny seemed to know how to get the boys to open up to him. Willie was one of the boys who was always happy to see Danny and enjoyed spending time with him. But after returning from camp, Willie's behavior began to change. He fought with his little sister, talked back to his mother, and was constantly angry. Ellie was at her wit's end, trying to deal with her little boy. He had always been so sweet and loving, and now he was turning into a little brat, she thought. She tried talking to him, giving him extra attention, getting tough with him, even bribing him, but nothing seemed to work. Their relationship grew strained, and Ellie was heartsick over this change. Sometimes, for a break, Ellie would send Willie to her sister Jan's house to stay over with his aunt and cousins. About nine months after the camping trip, Willie was spending the night at his aunt Jan's, and he was especially quiet and withdrawn. Jan tried to coax him to talk, and Willie finally said that he had something to tell her, but he wanted her to promise not to tell anyone, not even his mother. Jan agreed, saying he could tell her anything. Willie finally was able to reveal the whole story. That man Danny did nasty things to me, Willie told his aunt. At the summer camp, Driver had paid special attention to six-year-old Willie. He had taken him away from the other children to show him frogs and other woodland creatures. Willie loved animals and happily followed the man he thought was a friend. Driver began molesting Willie and threatened him that if he told, he would come to his house and kill him, his mother, and his sister. Driver continued to rape and molest Willie until camp ended. He even stalked the terrified boy once he returned home. Driver was able to threaten the child and continue the abuse for almost a year. But by the time Willie had confided in his aunt, Driver had cleared out of town. Jan immediately told her nephew that this was a secret she could not keep. She promised him that nothing would happen to him or his family, and that Danny was a bad man and should be punished. She went to her sister right away to give her the terrible news. When Ellie Nessler found out her son had been abused by Daniel Driver, her world came crashing down around her. She felt so stupid for not trusting her original instincts, which had been not to trust anyone else with her child. And she was furious at the man who'd caused her little boy so much pain. Willie had been having trouble not only at home, but at school. He was scared all the time, believing Driver was going to return to kidnap or kill him or his mother and sister. He suffered from terrible headaches and stomach aches and was constantly on edge, angry, sullen, and depressed. He would come home crying, saying that he'd seen Driver's car parked near the school or around town. He was sure the man was following him and meant to do him more harm. 
Ellie went to the police to report Danny Driver. They took a report and then ran his record. It was then that they discovered that Driver had a prior record of molesting young boys. In 1984, he'd been accused of committing lewd acts on five San Jose area boys. He had been arrested and went before the judge to be charged. But before his hearing, congregants of a San Jose church driver was attending sent letters to the judge. They said that Danny Driver was a fine man, a churchgoer, and a person of good character. The judge decided not to give Driver any jail time, but merely placed him on probation. As an aside, the judge, Robert Michael Foley, would later make a statement to the press in which he stood by Santa Clara County Superior Court Judge Aaron Persky's ruling in the controversial sexual assault case in 2016. Persky sentenced 20-year-old Stanford student Brock Turner, accused of sexually assaulting a young woman, to six months in county jail. The judge cited Turner's age, lack of prior convictions, and promising future as a reason for handing down what many considered an extremely light sentence. Turner could have received six years in state prison. Foley, retired from the Superior Court bench, was still serving as an assigned judge in San Francisco County as of 2018 and recently ran as a candidate for judge of the Superior Court in San Benito County. I digress, but this is why you really have to pay attention to those voting ballots, including the ones nobody really takes time to check, such as candidates for county and state judge positions. Just do a quick Google search before you check that box. You'd be amazed what you can find, good and bad, about who's serving on the bench. After Danny Driver was placed on probation, he eventually made his way to Tuolumne County. There in 1986, he began dating a divorced mother of two. She had a five-year-old son, and Driver began to show him special attention. At that time, he was working at another church camp where he was popular with the boys, playing football with them and allowing the younger ones to sit on his lap. A red flag went up for the boy's mother when she noticed Driver's behavior towards her son and other young boys. She asked her son straight out if Driver had ever touched him inappropriately. He said that he had not. But a few months later, she walked in on Driver while he was fondling her son. She threw him out and called a friend at the district attorney's office who ran a check on her boyfriend. She discovered that he'd served five months in jail in 1983 for felony child molestation in Santa Clara County. After L.A. Nestler filed her complaint against Driver, Tuolumne County investigators began building a case against the man who appeared to be a serial child molester. They interviewed other parents and children who'd been in contact with him and started hearing more stories, always with the same M.O. Driver liked to target children of single or divorced mothers. He almost always used his position as a member or employee of a church to gain the trust of others. He showered special attention on certain boys, giving them gifts, taking them out on errands, or using other excuses to get them alone. After sexually abusing the boys, he then threatened them and their families if they ever told anyone. But by this time, Driver must have gotten wind that investigators were asking questions, and he skipped town. In 1989, when investigators filed charges against Driver for the molestation of four different Tuolumne County boys, he was nowhere to be found. Danny Driver was a wanted man, but he had gotten away, leaving a trail of devastation in his wake. At least four boys had been sexually abused by him, and Willie Nestler was living in utter terror now that Driver had disappeared. 
Willie continued to have problems with depression and anxiety. Not knowing what to do with the hurt and pain he had locked inside of him, he acted out angrily. He had trouble at school academically as well as getting into fights, and he changed schools three times while still in grade school. He became mean, his Aunt Jan said. Finally, in 1993, Danny Driver was caught shoplifting in Palo Alto, a town over 125 miles or just over 200 kilometers to the west of Jamestown. He pleaded guilty to the theft charge and was returned to Tuolumne County to answer to the molestation charges, something Ellie Nestler had waited three long years for. But in the time leading up to the preliminary hearing, Willie had become increasingly distraught over the idea of having to face Driver in court. He'd been terrified of this man for years, and now he would have to stand up in open court and tell everyone what Driver had done to him. He became sick whenever he thought about it and began hyperventilating and vomiting whenever the subject came up. Ellie tried to talk to the district attorney's office about Willie testifying on video instead of in person. But because the Constitution allowed for a defendant to have the ability to face their accusers, this would not be allowed. For some cases involving minors, closed-circuit television cameras were used so that the child did not have to be in the same room with their abuser, but it would still happen in real time, when the defense, prosecution, and the accused could be present. However, the small community of Tuolumne County didn't have the budget for this. In fact, at the time, it didn't even possess a dedicated courtroom. A room in a local community center served as a makeshift courtroom at the time of driver's hearing. On April 2, 1993, the morning of the hearing, four boys, including Willie, were set to testify in court against Daniel Driver. He was being charged with seven counts of child molestation. The boys had all been between the ages of six and eight at the time they were abused. Willie, now 11, would be one of the last to testify. Before Ellie could even get Willie out of the car to enter the court, he began to vomit from the stress. He told her that he couldn't do it, he couldn't testify in court. She told him to be brave and that she knew he could do it. He could put Driver away so he couldn't hurt him or anyone else ever again. Willie calmed down a little and said he would try. Ellie, her sister Jan, cousin Ardala Inks, and Willie sat outside the courtroom waiting to be called to testify. A van arrived, transporting Daniel Driver to court. As soon as he heard Driver was there, Willie became sick again. Ellie had to grab a wastebasket from nearby so her poor distraught son could throw up once again. As he heaved into the basket, Ellie looked up to see Driver walk past them into the courtroom. She was trying to be strong for Willie, but was barely hanging on, seeing her little boy in so much pain. Then she saw Driver look in their direction as he entered the courtroom. Ellie would later say that the bastard smirked at her. In that moment, she would say she believed that he knew he was going to walk on these charges, just like he'd done before. He saw how distraught her son was to have to face him, and so he wasn't worried. Not long after this, Driver's former girlfriend walked out of the courtroom with her own son and shook her head at Ellie. The trial wasn't going well for them, she said. The boys were either too nervous at facing Driver or were getting tripped up by the defense's questions. Ellie began to feel more panicked and angrier that this son of a bitch might actually get away scot-free. She looked at her little boy, who'd gone from a happy, carefree child, to a boy who was so scared and depressed that he'd threatened suicide. She couldn't handle this, 
She couldn't let this monster get away with raping her son and walking away to do it again to someone else's child. Ellie knew that if Driver was set free, Willie would never again feel safe. She had to do something. The old courthouse was a relic of the past. There were no metal detectors and really not much security at all. In the hills of Tuolumne County, people often carried guns with them in their cars or even in their waistbands. Ellie's sister happened to have a small gun in her purse and hadn't even remembered it was there when she'd entered the courtroom. But now, Ellie remembered it. She strode over to a bench where the purse was sitting open. In one motion, she reached in to retrieve the gun and placed it into the front pocket of her skirt. The court was still in recess, and Daniel Driver was sitting at the defense table with his attorney, his back to the door. Without speaking or breaking her stride, Ellie walked up behind him and pulled out the weapon. She aimed it at Driver's head and fired off all six bullets into him, missing only once. Driver fell to the floor, shot in the head. Pandemonium ensued in the courtroom with the attorneys and spectators screaming and diving for cover. Deputies arrived and drew their weapons on Ellie. She quickly dropped her gun to the floor. Her sister Jan ran in screaming for the deputies not to shoot her sister and jumped in front of her. The deputies hesitated, and Ellie raised her arms above her in surrender. Ellie was quickly handcuffed and taken from the courtroom to the jail. Daniel Driver was rushed to the hospital, where he died an hour later. When word got out that a mother in Jamestown had administered frontier justice by shooting and killing her son's child molester, Ellie Nestler was hailed as a hero. One of the other mothers who had listened to her own son testify that day about being sexually abused by Daniel Driver said that her only regret was that she didn't get to see it happen, having stepped out of the room just moments before. If she had told me she was going to shoot him, I would have stayed, she told People magazine. I wanted to do it myself. Another Jamestown resident said, If anything, she'd done us all a favor. That's one less we've got to support behind bars. And nobody else's kids will have to worry about him. Another resident didn't like that her community was being portrayed as a bunch of backwoods vigilantes. Sure, we've got our share of rednecks, the resident told a Los Angeles Times reporter. But this is about a mother protecting her cubs. You mess with my young honey, and you're dead meat too. Ellie Nestler was charged with first-degree murder, and her bail was set at $500,000. When the public discovered that Daniel Driver had been charged with multiple counts of child molestation and had skated on these same charges previously in another town, they rallied to Ellie's defense, saying that she'd only done what the law so often failed to do, punish criminals and keep their communities safe. Collection jars were placed in businesses around town, and people sent small checks directly to Ellie, to help her with her bail and defense. Local residents Michael Sonnenfeld and Daniel Robert printed up hundreds of free Ellie Nestler bumper stickers that they then sold to raise money for her as well. People around the country sent flowers, gifts, and cards of encouragement while she was in jail, and the accolades didn't stop after a Sacramento bondsman put up the half-million-dollar bail to get Ellie released from jail. But Ellie became a controversial figure, with some continuing to call her a hero and others denouncing the idea of taking the law into your own hands. She made colorful statements to the press that weren't always helpful to her case. I may not be God, Ellie said, but I tell you what, I'm the closest damn thing to it, 
she was quoted in the press as saying, Investigators discovered more to Ellie Nessler than the church-going mama bear the media was portraying her to be. Tests showed that she had been high on methamphetamine at the time she shot and killed Driver. She had a criminal conviction for auto theft when she was 18 and had served several months in a California Youth Authority facility. She also told police during her interview right after the shooting that she'd contemplated killing her son's abuser at least two years before she walked into the courtroom that morning. Also revealed was her family history, in which her father had abused her mother before dying of cancer in 1988, her own molestation by a family friend when she was just seven years old, and her abandonment by her husband, who left her with two young children to raise on her own. This made her a more sympathetic figure to the public. Allie pled not guilty by reason of temporary insanity, and her attorneys began preparing for trial. Then she was hit with another devastating blow in October of 1993, when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. She was told by doctors that, at best, she might survive five years. She desperately prayed to be acquitted so that she could go home and spend whatever time she had left with her children, but it was not to be. Ellie Nessler was found guilty on the lesser charge of voluntary manslaughter. She wrote an impassioned letter to the judge before her sentencing, asking for probation instead of jail time. The judge knew about Ellie's cancer diagnosis and that a sentence of even a short amount of time could equate to a death sentence for her. But after carefully weighing all the facts of the case and feeling the need to stress that vigilante justice was illegal and contributed to the breakdown of society, the judge sentenced Ellie to 10 years behind bars. Ellie Nestler's celebrity didn't end once she was sent to prison in January of 1994. People around the world were still intrigued by her story and wanted to get updates on how she and her children were faring. In March 1995, Ellie, looking older but healthy, was interviewed on the Oprah Winfrey show via satellite, while her children, Willie and Rebecca, sat in Oprah's television studio. Willie was living with his aunt while Rebecca had stayed with her grandparents. When asked whether she felt justified in taking Daniel Driver's life, Ellie responded, I'm sorry that I killed someone and that I'm not with my children, but on the other hand, I wish the judicial system would have taken care of it. I wish I wouldn't have had to. Two years later, after the California Supreme Court ruled that juror misconduct had occurred during Ellie's original trial, she was able to strike a plea deal and was released from prison after serving almost four years. She returned home to her children, who were now 11 and 15. She made a statement upon her release, saying, Although I felt justified at the time, I can honestly say I'm sorry for taking a man's life. While Ellie was still in prison, she'd received an offer to have her story made into a television movie. She signed a $110,000 contract, and the movie, titled Judgment Day, The Ellie Nestler Story, finally aired in 1999. Not used to having so much money at one time, Ellie quickly burned through her earnings. She purchased a new home in Galt and moved in with her two teens, but the good times didn't last. Before long, the money was gone, and Ellie lost her home and had to move in with a family friend. Willie Nestler began having his own legal troubles around the same time. His family said he had changed greatly after being sexually abused by Daniel Driver and became even more angry and hard to handle after his mother was sent to prison. His first time in a juvenile youth facility occurred when he was just 14. 
Willie would continue to be arrested and locked up throughout his teens and early 20s for offenses including robbery, battery, and weapon and drug charges. He would be booked at the Tuolumne County Jail 18 times between 1999 and 2004. In 2001, Ellie was caught purchasing 10,000 pseudofedrin tablets that are used to make methamphetamine from an informant and was charged with drug possession with intent to sell. She pled guilty to the charge and was sentenced to six years in the Central California Women's Prison in Chowchilla. In 2004, Willie Nestler was living on property his family owned in the mountain area where he'd grown up. He'd been subsisting on odd jobs but was often unemployed. Willie, now 23, stood 6 foot 2 inches tall and weighed 225 pounds. He looked intimidating due to his size and tattoos, but those who knew him said he still seemed like an insecure little boy. They felt he often lashed out angrily for any perceived slight as a defense mechanism for feeling so powerless for so much of his young life. He was living on property in an unincorporated part of the county in Sonora, which had fallen into disuse over the years and become a camp for squatters. Willie was cleaning up the property alongside David Davis, who'd been hired to help. Davis had been disabled by a neck injury while working in the oil fields and had welcomed the opportunity to work again. But in June, a dispute over some missing tools took place between the men. When a sheriff's unit responded to a call to the property, Willie became so enraged that he punched Davis in front of the deputies. As he was hauled away in handcuffs, he allegedly told the police, he's lucky I didn't kill him. Willie pled guilty to assault and spent the next month in jail. He was released early in the morning of July 26, 2004, and about an hour later, he confronted Davis and stomped the disabled man to death. He then fled the jurisdiction. Days later, Willie Nestler was caught and charged with first-degree murder. In 2005, he was found guilty and sentenced to serve 25 years to life at High Desert State Prison near Susanville, California. The following year, Ellie Nestler was granted early release after serving four years of her six-year sentence. But by this time, Ellie's cancer had progressed. She was too sick to visit her son in prison, but they spoke by phone regularly. The day after Christmas in 2008, Ellie Nestler died in a Sacramento hospital. She was 56 years old. She'd lived 10 years longer than doctors had given her to survive when she was diagnosed in 1993. She was buried at the family plot located in Angels Camp, California. Her sisters Jan and Mariette and daughter Rebecca attended. Willie asked for permission to attend his mother's funeral, but was denied by prison authorities. Two news crews were on hand to document the solemn occasion. Her family and friends went on record to say that Ellie Nestler was more than her notoriety or her troubled past. They described her as smart, tough, and passionate, and also a hero. Her niece Cassie spoke of her strength and said, That is heroism. And that is Ellie. To her son Willie, to her daughter Rebecca, and to everyone who knew her, she was a hero. Rebecca Nestler had grown up most of her life without her mother and her brother, but the family strength wore off on her, and she has become not just a survivor, but has triumphed over all she's been through. She is married with children 
and still lives close to her extended family. She has also remained close to her brother, Willie. They write to each other often, and in 2010, she visited him in prison, accompanied by reporter Dan Abrams. Both Rebecca and Abrams reported that Willie Nessler takes responsibility for what he did to land him in prison. He doesn't use his past as an excuse for his behavior, Abrams said, but is introspective about how events in his life unfolded. While being sexually molested as a child did leave a big scar, Willie says, he felt the biggest hurt in his life was being uprooted from his mother and sister after Ellie went to jail for killing Daniel Driver. It was also very painful for Willie to be plastered in the media as the, quote, kid who was molested, unquote, beginning at such a young age. Abrams explains, once his mother became this national figure and his life was on display for the world, I think that was the hardest part for him. He felt ashamed and was afraid of becoming a target of others' bullying or abuse, so he grew a tough exterior, reacting with extreme anger to any perceived threat. He received very little help or counseling to deal with his pain, Rebecca says, and this caused him to go down a dark path. Rebecca also says that he was always a very good big brother, and he always looked out for her. She calls him her best friend. She continues to stay in contact with her brother and looks forward to, hopefully, having him back with her again outside of prison. He will be eligible for parole in 2031. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative assistant is Lorena Garcia, and our copy editor is Crystal Dernan. Until next time, be good to one another.